Okay, we are live. Hey, welcome to Josh's Daily Brew. I'm your host, Josh. This podcast is dedicated to my obsession with the art of living by design. You can expect thoughts on books I've read, the esoteric world of health and fitness, some cryptocurrency dabble, and everything in between. Stoked you here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so I've got a special episode for you today. I interviewed the one and only Professor Tim Noakes yesterday, and it was thoroughly enjoyable. This was really special to me because he's been like a mentor to me the past three years. Um, I met him in Cape Town uh, doing CrossFit, and um, I honestly have so much time for this man, and there we dive into a lot. We we get into you know Twitter and the power of social media, hydration on low carb diets, uh, cholesterol, optimism, um, his thoughts on COVID, and his new book that's coming out next year. So he releases some information that he has um, never released before or has never explained before on camera. So I'm really really excited to release this episode to you. So if you do enjoy it please give a thumbs up, please subscribe. It really does go a long way to help people find my work. Um, but I really appreciate your support and please enjoy this very wide-ranging conversation with one and only Professor Tim Noakes. Okay, three, two, one, we love. Okay, Prof, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure, Josh. Lovely to catch up with you again. Yes, yes. Um, and just to give people context, uh, the first time I saw you, I've been a big fan of you for a long time. And the first time I met you, I'll never forget, was at uh, CrossFit District 6. And um, I was so nervous, I knocked over my coffee. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, but um, uh, you've always been, uh, I just want to say thank you. You've always been uh, open to talking and uh, open to sharing ideas. And you've uh, really, really helped me grow as a person. And you've been a mentor to me um, the past few years. So thank you. My pleasure. Fantastic to see and to share life with you. That's super. Yeah. So I, th- I thought I'd start in, in, the, in the realm of uh, Twitter. Um, mm. And um, I recently saw something that you reposted on Twitter. I was, I follow you there and you posted something, uh, you reposted the American Diabetes Association. were recommending uh, uh, double duty banana pancake recipes, uh, fat-free recipes. Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, that's obviously that can you can speak to that, but I just wanted to find out um, what is Twitter your preferred source of medium? Is that how you get your message across? Because that seems to be where you're most active. So I just want to hear your thoughts on Twitter and maybe some examples like this American yeah. Association one. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've only used Twitter, I've not been on Facebook, I've known nothing about Facebook or Instagram or something. I just started because Lewis Pugh, the guy who we helped swim at the North Pole and at the, in the South, in the Antarctic. Uh, he said to me in April 2012, he said, if you want to get your message out, you should use Twitter. And he's the UN patron of the oceans. So that's partly how he's got his message out. And so I decided to do that. And I mean, I literally had no clue what I was doing and I didn't know what would happen. But what I soon learned, the, the key in Twitter is who you follow. That, that's the absolute key. 
So I followed the top people in the low carb story and I get all the information and then I add a few other people, but I've actually just written an article on this. I was asked by a local medical journal to describe what happened to me in my trial and so on and go through it. And would I advise doctors to use Twitter? And my conclusion is that, that although I'm retired, I'm getting more information. And this I mean, I'm getting more information every day than I ever got when I was a full-time academic studying medicine and, and sports, nutrition, and so on. Because every day I open my Twitter account and there are 150 people saying what they're doing today and what they're reading and what they're lecturing on. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have that. You can't go to a medical school and have 150 of the world authorities sitting in a lecture theater telling you, hey, Tim, this is what I'm doing today. And Tim, this is the article you should read. I, it couldn't happen, but it can on Twitter. And I think that's, that's why I'm so enthusiastic about it. I mean, just two seconds ago, before I turn to you, there's an article saying that the Atkins diet works and it's better than the standard American diet. So I tweeted immediately, as you can see, I said it took 42 years or something, 48 years for Atkins to be proven correct. Well, he's now been proven correct five minutes ago and I know about it. Yeah. Uh, long before you know, any, most other people will know about it. So, that, so you can see, I'm in, that's why I'm enthusiastic, because you just get so much information. Yeah. And, and the, irony, the irony is that when I had to defend my case before the Health Professions Council for saying stuff on Twitter, all the information, most information I used in my defense, I got from Twitter. Fire, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's um, that's very interesting. I love I love also just exactly like you said, it's it's who you follow, and it's it's about. I think it's so important. I know my generation as well. I think it's so important to. I'm a big fan of curating, curating the, the your content very wisely. So not just following random people. I think it's so important to follow people that that um, that uh, you think are, are going to add value to you because those that's actually your tribe. That's the people you you sharing your mind with each day. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, thank I, you. I'd agree. <clears throat> I agree completely with that. You've got you, and you need to find the really good people. And I still I'm still adding people on who I discover. Um, I discovered yesterday one of the guys who who designed the testing that they use in COVID, and he was saying how it's been completely abused the way. It, the way it's being interpreted. He said, he, I would never design this so that it could be weaponized to mm. keep people in lockdown. Yeah. That, when you read that, you realize this guy, he knows something. Yeah. No, that's, that's pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So also to maybe shift gears slightly, actually, let me start. So, I mean, as long as I've known you in the gym uh, in Cape Town and um, when you train together, you've always, uh, you've always hammered home on positivity and optimism and you've always been an optimistic person. Um, so I would love to know, like, where does this innate, like optimism and drive come from? Is it born out of your like athletic side or is it, um, where does it come from? And then maybe the second part of the story is I remember you telling me a story about a woman who ran an 800 meter race, I think. And um, I think you know the story. So I wanted you to maybe yeah. tell that story because I think it's such a powerful story. Actually, I'll try to look for it, but I forgot it. But yeah. maybe you can answer those two 
in, in however fashion you like because yeah. I think it's so important. And then we'll start with the second question. The second question, she was actually running a 5,000 meters. Oh, okay. And she was lying. She was, she was about 50 meters, 60 meters behind the winner, the race leader, as they came into the final lap. And she looked up at the time. And, and it, she realized suddenly if she ran 65 seconds for the last lap, she would have qualified for the Olympics. So all of a sudden her focus became qualifying for the Olympics, not winning the race. And she sped off and she wins the race. And she said, I would never have won that race if it hadn't been for that thought. So, I mean, that's, you know, you always got to see the end point to be yes. successful. I don't know where my optimism comes from. I think it's from my father. My father, I, you, I don't think we ever discussed this, but he came to, he came to Zimbabwe, Southern Rhodesia as it was then, in 1946, so he fought the Second World War, and then and he he married married in 1940. So there were, he was six years married, and his my sister had just been born, and he and my mother decided that's it. We're leaving Britain. We're coming to Zimbabwe. Now they had connections in Zimbabwe, but literally they came there with I don't think with a cent in their pockets, and they 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 drove from Cape Town to to Salisbury, Harare. Wow, and and they started a new life and. And he was a genius and he became a, an African authority in his particular business. And that's, I think I inherited from him. He was a very, they were very brave to have done that. Yeah. And so I was fortunate. My dad always never thought there was a problem and you know, he would just get on and do it. So I think that was the, the message I, I got from him. Awesome. I, yeah. I absolutely love that. The positivity. Now, then you ask, you know, I was very ordinary at school and a lot of people, that made me not think that. I was, I was always never first. I was always in the second group. But, but when I left school, I realized, I said, no, there's more I can do. And then I was so fortunate because I went to America on an American exchange program. And I went to Los Angeles. It was 67, 68. If you look up the history of 1967, 68, you'll see the world changed that year. It was an amazing year. Everything changed. And I was right at the center of where it was happening. And I went to this amazing school, which was the most, one of the most integrated schools in America. So here I am coming from apartheid South Africa, from a very privileged background, living, work, going to this very privileged private school. And I was thrown to Los Angeles into this very mixed environment. And it was unbelievable. I just, I got so much out of that year. And then when I came back, I just, I decided I'd study medicine. And, uh, I was fortunate that when I studied medicine, I realized I'm not a clinician. I'm not someone who can deal on a day-to-day -day basis with patients. I just haven't got that in my personality. I can't deal with death. I think that's one of the key things. You, mm. If you were, if you're in a medical practice, you have to be able to deal with death. Mm. And I couldn't deal with death. So I knew that that wasn't for me, but fortunately from my second year, sorry, the other point was that I started medicine in 1969. And sports medicine literally started in 1968 because that was wow. the first year the Olympics were held at altitude. And all of a sudden, everyone said, gosh, what happens at altitude? Will the athletes die? And no one knew that literally no one had clue, a clue what would happen at altitude. And that was the first starting of sports medicine. And it was also the first year the East Germans competed. And, and you may not remember this, but, but it was the height of the Cold War. And so East Germany came along and they doped up their athletes. They used lots of drugs and they started winning way above the Americans in terms of their population size. 
And then they, America realized that the East Germans were using this as a polit polit political weapon. And they decided we better do something about it. So they started investing in sports medicine and sports science. I mean, how, how literally how bad it was in 1968 when the Americans went to the Olympics, they literally contacted the doctor one week before to say, oh, you know, we're going to the Olympics. Would you like to come and look after the athletes? That's, that's how it was in 1968. And if sure. you look today, of course, it's totally different. So, yeah. so I was fortunate. I was right there at the start. And it was possible at that time to know all about sports medicine because it was a small field. But today, you have to be a specialist in an area, so you don't have the global picture. Yeah, that we have. Yeah, sure. Then, I think, then so so then the, I think my the two sporting experiences that I had, and again it was so fortunate that that when I was in America, my best friend there, I asked him on my last day at school, the last time I ever spoke to him, until more recently because he phoned me about his daughter, but that's another story because she. <laughs> studying sports science but i asked him what sport are you going to play when you go to university he went to the salt lake city university and he said i'm going to do crew which is rowing i said gosh that's a good idea i think i'll try that so i went to i started rowing immediately as i came to qct and we were utterly hopeless the club was hopeless in intervarsity we came last in everything and Vitz just destroyed us and so, so, and that went for two years, and then we got a new coach. He literally arrived at our, uh, where we trained, and he said, I'm gonna be your coach. And he just was astonishing. And he took us to quite a high level. And so, I, and he taught us all about the basic physiology. I mean, the way he trained us. Hmm. We did endurance training. We were the first guys who rode through winter in the Cape. And, and as a consequence, we were very competitive in the next year. And I went from that, so then I got some understanding, and then I went from that to, to running the Comrades in 1973, and I had an unbelievable run that year. And then I, because I, when I started running, I couldn't run three miles at the pace I ran 56 miles in the Comrades two years yes. later. Wow. And then I, and I realized, oh my gosh, you know, that's how things can change. Yeah. That's how you can train your body. I, and so I realized the potential of the body is enormous. Mm, that's, oh, thank you so much. That's so incredible. Um, yeah, um, I couldn't agree more, honestly. Um, and I mean, speaking about the body, I, I, um, I recently, uh, so I'm fascinated about your book, uh, Waterlogged, and uh, about your thoughts on hydration, in my opinion. And so I recently tweeted Amber O'Hearn. I'm sure you both know. I'm a very big fan of yeah, her as well. Right. And I asked her also on Twitter about her views, views on salts, and she's got very similar views on you. So what I want to know from you is that somebody who's a low carb athlete like myself, let's just say carnivore, pretty much very low carb. What are your, what, what are your thoughts on hydration and does the same principles apply to people that aren't low carb? So I'm, I'm very intrigued because I'm also at, I'm at odds with myself. I've been experimenting. I, I, I don't, I'm a bit confused. It's just a very confusing, you know, you know, like, <laughs> will I die if I don't eat enough salt? And then, yeah. but I feel better without salt. So sorry. I, I would just love to know your thoughts on, on this very complex topic of hydration. I find it's quite fascinating to be honest. Yeah. Sorry. The, the sound's gone off. So I didn't hear your last bit of your question. Oh, can you, can you hear me now? I still can't hear you. Just hold on a second. Oh. 
There we go. Now I can hear you. Hello, so you okay. said you're confused about salt. Yeah, I'm just, uh, it's just very, I said, yeah, I'm just very confused about this, this, this realm, the, the realm of hydration and um, how it applies to maybe low carb or people that aren't low carb or if that makes yeah. sense. Sorry. So let me give you my background story. So when I started running uh, marathons in 1972, the ruling was that you could drink intermittently. You could only drink very infrequently in marathons. And, and I thought that was wrong. And so we started a campaign in South Africa as elsewhere. And in fact, the first article I ever wrote that was published was saying that we've got to provide more fluids during marathon races. And then in 1976, the first Olympic, uh, the Olympic marathon was the first where fluid was available more, more widely. And then by 1981 in the Comrades, you could get a drink every mile, every mile. Now, when I ran the Comrade 73 the first time, I had five drinks during 56 miles. Five drinks, because that's you could only you had a second, and you could only see them every 10 k's, and you couldn't see them in the first 220 miles. First, for the first 30 k's, you weren't allowed to see anyone. Wow. You just had to run. I, I can't remember if we had a seconding station. I don't think we did. But your seconds could only see you after 20 miles, and then you had to then you had to see the the person had to catch you somewhere and they had to go and drive and then find you. And so you normally would see them every 10 Ks and I literally had five drinks. And so I wasn't a great over drinker, but then I was trying to promote lots of drinking. And then in 1981, the first case of over hydration happened. And, and I fortunately worked out very quickly that this lady had over drunk, whereas everyone else was saying she was dehydrated and she just lost, lost salt, but she was sweating salt. But, but there's a simple calculation you can make and you can see that you can't lose enough salt to drop your sodium the way she had. So she, there had to be another mechanism. Mm, okay. And then so eventually we proved it was, it was too much water and she was re retaining the water. Okay. And so I then got locked into with the Gatorade organization because what happened in 1987 was Gatorade, the product was bought by another company who decided we're going to make a lot of money out of this company. And then they eventually they sold it to Pepsi-Cola, who took it to another level. And they started driving this over-drinking story without any evidence. And so when we tried to publish the all contrary evidence, it, it got, got thrown out. It wasn't published, publishable in the majority of scientific journals in North America. There were only two journals where we could publish and they were because they had editorial boards that weren't controlled by industry. And that's where I learned about how industry controls the science. They get their scientists to, to become famous. And mm. it's very obvious. So let's say you, you, you're interested in carbohydrates will you, and you're influential. Very quickly, the industry knows that guy's going to go somewhere. We must, we yeah, must support let's fund him. him. Yeah. <laughs> so they fund you they fund you and then you go and you give lectures all around the world and you become the known expert so now when an organization like the american college of sports medicine decides they want to write a a, a thesis a paper a position paper on carbohydrates during exercise who do they speak to they speak to the people who've got the most publications who are those people that the people funded by industry hmm. and and what does industry want out of them to make sure that they produce a position statement which states that carbohydrates are absolutely essential to performance or in this case carbohydrates in your drinks are absolutely essential for your performance 
So, so I fought that for 30 years and waterlogged is the book that, that, that resulted from it. Now, to get back to your question, no one worried about salt. <laughs> no, it wasn't an issue because everyone just thought we'll take salt and it's okay. And, and you'll just need, you'll take what you need. And if you read waterlogged, I, I, I write the story of how in the second world war, the, the Americans had to fight in the Pacific, which was incredibly hot. And they noticed that for the first few days when the, the soldiers were in those hot environment, they were completely hopeless, they were useless. Mm. And they wondered what was happening. And they just happened to, to go to an endocrinologist and asked him, what's the problem? And, and he said, well, he'll study what he's good at. He studied endocrinology, the, the hormones and the sodium in the urine and so on. And he did the most remarkable studies because he had people who were, didn't want to fight the war. They were conscientious objectors and he but they wanted to do something for america so he said fine what you're going to do is you're going to work out in this heat chamber for six hours a day for the next <laughs> three months and they did and they gave everything they could so every day they went back into the, the heat chamber and they exercised for six hours and he gave them more or less sodium and what he showed he could not induce sodium deficiency in them he couldn't produce it because the body has this incredible capacity to, to conserve sodium. And he got them right down to one and a half grams a day about. And they, even though they were exercising so much, they still couldn't uh, become mm -hmm. sodium deficient. Wow. So that's the reality. It's very, very difficult to become sodium deficient. So what we so, do know, what we, so, that's the final statement. What we do know is if you have heart disease, uh, or sorry, if you're at risk of developing heart disease, the, the low sodiums don't help you restricting your sodium below three mm. grams a day doesn't help and increasing it above five grams a day doesn't help so that's the the key zone is three to five grams now stephen finney who i have such great regard for who is one of the people who promoted the low carb diet he says you need more sodium and i think he, he's correct there are some people who definitely lose a lot of more sodium than they should on a low carb diet mm. and they will benefit from taking more sodium Mm. but but you you discovered the opposite and i mean that's the reality we're all individuals and, yeah and we we respond differently and you have to find out what's right for you yeah no thank you that that makes that that clarifies things a lot better um yeah i appreciate that um thank you um so your diets what is your what does your diet look like currently these days what is the the average uh, prof meal plan look like yeah, I eat, a, I eat just carnivore, I'm essentially carnivore. I've cut main, most vegetables out. And so I eat, the, the, I eat lots of eggs and lots of steak and lots of bacon, quite a lot of fish, quite a lot of nuts and quite a lot of cheese. That's yeah. kind of, and I eat one meal a day. Generally, I one cooked meal a day. I don't, and I say it's a big meal and that's it. And I find that's, that, that's perfect for me. I don't need, I don't get hungry. Uh, with that one big meal, I'll be 24 hours before I start thinking of food again. And just to give and people so that, an idea, you you are diabetic as well. So you're off the, completely off your, your I, I don't know if that's still correct, but I don't know if you can speak to your, your sure. being off your medication. But some people, I know it's, we live in our own low-carb bubble. And for us, it's like, oh yeah, there's another guy that's, that's off his medication. But for the average person, they couldn't even probably comprehend that you can do this without medication, yeah, uh, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
so my story was that that I was the original guy promoting carbs and and if you read Law of Running, you'll see that it says that carbohydrates are absolutely essential for for performance, but for healthy living. And I mean, nothing could be more incorrect than that. That that's a terrible statement. So I became known as the guy who changed his mind, and people hated me for changing my mind. But which I don't get at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to change my mind because I knew that people would be would develop type two diabetes on the advice that I gave them. Mm. And so I developed type two diabetes and then fortunately read Eric Westman's book and Jeff Ehrlich's book and uh, started applying a low carb diet. And the response was dramatic. I felt so much better. And my diabetic, diabetes control improved dramatically and it's improved progressively over the last 10 years. So I'm not, I'm not completely off medication, but I have, I've halved my dose of medication, which I shouldn't have done. So I only take metformin, which most people would think is, is a pretty benign form of treatment. And I've reduced the dose to half of what it was when I started. And my control is even, if anything, slightly better. Wow. So, so eating carnivore and eating infrequently has, has improved dramatically. And, you know, the interesting thing was that, that I, I got concerned. My dad had died of type 2 diabetes. And he, from diagnosis to death, was 10 years now, I've been 10 years from diagnosis with diabetes, but I know I had it for probably three or four years before. I'm probably 13 years into diabetes, and, and so far I don't have any complications, but I should be dead, I should, or I should have lost a limb, or I should have had a stroke. Mm. And so that's, the, that's the hard reality. I, I should not be talking to you as I am. But thanks to the low-carb diet, I've, uh, I've, I've so, far, so far succeeded. I'm, it's not... It's not impossible that I will develop a complication of diabetes because my control is not 100%. It's not as perfect as someone who's a 20-year-old. So I can't expect not to develop some complications, but I'm 71 and a half and I'm doing okay so far. That's awesome. Uh, that's makes my heart so happy. It's so inspiring. Um, yeah. So, I mean, on the topic of, you know, carnivore and things like that. So my mom is actually carnivore and she two months ago she went for her uh she went to go do a life insurance policy thing and she had to go and get her cholesterol done for life insurance from this from good old discovery health and um and like i know a lot of people are still concerned about cholesterol and her cholesterol not surprisingly came back and it was uh you know it was high because she's carnival but but on the flip side of that is that she, all of the arthritis symptoms, she had, she had debilitating arthritis. That's all gone. And yeah. she's got stable blood sugar, everything else. I would just love to hear your thoughts. I know you've, we speak about off, you don't have to go too deep into it, but like for the average person who like listens to my content and they, they're worried about cholesterol and like, I mean, there's obviously so many modalities involved here, but I mean, what, where do you see us going with, with this? Because in my opinion, we need a better proxy or a better, a better way to measure, you know, health in, 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 in cases like that. So I would love to know what you, what you would say to, to that, um, that situation that many people probably find uh, themselves in. Yeah. You know, in life, what, what I, I learned as I taught students is that you interpret everything according to a model, a model of how the world works. And the model that the industry has managed to force onto the medical profession is that cholesterol causes arterial blocking and heart disease. And there is no evidence whatsoever for that, none at all. Mm. 
if you want to start reading about it, you, you know the books to read. But I mean, Law mm. of Nutrition, I, I went to, we went to court 28 days, we presented the evidence, and we just proved that there is no evidence that cholesterol causes heart disease. So, so what is it that causes heart disease? It's insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. And that's, that's what you have to look or worry about. And, but until you get that model into people's heads, it's hopeless. And yeah. because the profession is paid, the profession is paid to make sure that we don't get that message. That's yeah. the problem. So Marikas Boris and I, who wrote the book, The Law of Running, A Law of Nutrition, which is about my trial, we've just finished another book, which is coming out in February. And then we say, okay, fine, let's look at this stupid story about cholesterol. So we completely destroy all the evidence. And for the first time, I think the average person can read about insulin resistance and understand what's happening. And there's a diagram in there, which is, it's unbelievable. I managed to source it, the original diagram from a paper, which was published only like two months ago. And again, where did I find it? From Twitter, which shows all the steps that occur once you become insulin resistant, and then you develop all the abnormalities in glucose metabolism and in weight metabolism and so on. Mm. And that cause heart disease. And it's got nothing to do with cholesterol. It's got everything to do with leakage of fat from your visceral fat. That's where the problem lies. The visceral fat, which is adipose cells in the abdomen, they become insulin resistant. And once they become too filled, they start leaking free fatty acids. And the free fatty acids start circulating in the body. And they then accumulate in the liver, the pancreas, the muscles, and that's what, and that causes the inflammation and all the problems that cause heart disease begin because the fat is coming out of the adipose tissue. It's got nothing to do with fat in your diet. Mm. Absolutely nothing. It has everything to do with carbohydrates and insulin. And now I'm going to drop another bombshell, which you've never heard this. And this is first time that anyone's going to hear this. People tell you that cholesterol VLDL cholesterol is made in the liver. So for example, when your, wife, when your mother was told that her VLDL cholesterol is too high because she's eating too much fat and that's causing the VLDL cholesterol to rise, that is not true. VLDL cholesterol is not formed in the liver. What happens is that the precursor to VLDL cholesterol is a thing called LDL cholesterol. And LDL cholesterol, VLDL cholesterol is triglyceride rich with cholesterol. It's a particle that is formed in the liver in response to carbohydrates and insulin. It is released from the liver and circulates around in the bloodstream and is broken down into LDL cholesterol. So what is driving LDL cholesterol is the carbohydrates which are driving the VLDL cholesterol. Now, when you read the new book, I show you that in 1950, a guy called John Goffman was the first person to come up with, he broke down all these lipid, what we call the lipoproteins. And you'll know that the lipoproteins are the carriers for cholesterol and triglycerides. And there are four major ones, the VLDL and then LDL and then HDL and then chylomicrons. But but the key point is, in 1950, 
he said, too much carbohydrate causes too much VLDL triglycerides, which causes heart disease. Wow. He said that, but he said also too much fat raises the LDL cholesterol, and that's also linked to heart disease. So I would say he wasn't entirely correct on that. But anyway, he came up with the two theories that carbohydrates and fats cause heart disease. He was a world authority, a great scientist. And Ansel Keys came along who had no training whatsoever. Hoffman <laughs> yeah. was a world authority. Ansel Keys came along and he saw all this money that was being pumped into heart disease research. And he said, how am I going to get ahead of Goffman? And he saw a World Health Organization publication and had a figure from which he extracted his famous curve showing mm. rates of heart disease versus fat intake. And he selected the six countries. So he looked at one picture and he said, ah, I can be the world authority because I can become an epidemiologist overnight without any training. Sure. I just have to look at this graph and now I'm a world authority and I didn't, have to, I didn't have to do one thing of training. And then he became the world authority. And Goffman got so fed up that Goffman left the field. And with it, he took the theory that carbohydrates are causing heart disease. Had he stuck around, they would have realized that it's carbohydrates that are the real risk factor for heart disease, mm. which we now know. Yeah. It's only yeah. taken 70 years for us to get back to that point. It took 70 years because we were taken on the wrong route. So unfortunately, Discovery Health has got to eventually realize that they backed the wrong horse. And it's mm. not cholesterol. It's carbohydrate. And you know, I used to be the expert on nutrition for Discovery Health. And I often speak to them. And I tell them the same story. Every time. Say, okay. That's really interesting, you know, Tim. And that's great. But <laughs> that's a, it ends there. Yeah. Oh, um. Shame, Tim, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I really appreciate it. But just to end off, I would love to hear what your thoughts are, if you have any, in the current uh, COVID, um, COVID uh, happening at the moment. Um, I have to ask, I mean, is there any thoughts that you have? What's, what would you do differently? Um, yeah, I would love to just hear your thoughts on, on what's happening at the moment. Uh <laughs> So I have to be very careful because my thoughts are already being censored on this topic. Okay. So, so I, I became interested be, and so on Twitter, of course, I followed all the information. I downloaded stuff. I started downloading articles and I had a, you know, word like this. And the first thing that struck me was that using of ventilators seemed to be wrong. And I came across this guy, Cameron Kyle Sidel, I think his name is who's a young doctor, and I thought, this guy is brave because he, he filmed himself and he gave a short lecture of about 15 minutes and he said, mm, listen. I did see that, yeah. Yeah, you saw that one. And I said, this guy, he knows something. And, and what he said was, which was critical, he said, I have to make a decision whether I tell this patient who's fully conscious that I'm now going to make them unconscious and ventilate them because normally a patient who needs ventilation is to be put on a ventilator is usually semi-conscious or unconscious. So the decision is easy because you don't have to speak to the patient. And he said, I could no longer justify telling a patient that I'm going to have to immobilize them and I'm going to put this ventilator on and they may not, I may never speak to them again. And they may never speak to their families again. 
He said, I can't do it. So I then looked into it and I realized that the COVID, the symptoms that they were getting were of this hypoxia, which develops this, which they had, and the, the mechanism couldn't just be a pneumonia. It had to be something else. So I incorrectly initially thought it was because the red blood cells were being damaged. And so the red cells weren't carrying, carrying the oxygen normally. And it turns out that's partly correct, but what was happening, the blood was clotting and then the, the blood was not getting distributed properly to the lungs. So the lungs were, were under ventilating. So, so, but I was on the right track and it, it wasn't just the pneumonia, there was something else. Mm. So one of my great friends in Cape Town said, Tim, won't you talk to us about COVID? And so out of the, out of the blue, he said, so tell us what happens when you get COVID infection. So I'm not a virologist. So I said, well, you know, this is what I think happens. And so I said this, I talked about this. And then I said that, therefore, if it is true and the red cells are being damaged, hydroxychloroquine might work and ventilators probably don't work. You need it to do something else. Within 24 hours, he nearly lost his job. He wow. nearly lost his job for interviewing me. And the Minister of Health in the Western Cape forced them to take that, the, the podcast down or the interview down. And, and she said it was because I was spreading half-truths. Okay. So, okay. so then I realized, and the next thing that happened was this, this idiot who writes the magazine Grounder, who I've had one conflict with before, Mr. Nathan Geffen. He writes an article, Dr. Noakes is a disgrace because he's damaging people's health and blah, blah, blah. And he's saying all these things. He's, and he's saying hydroxychloroquine is safe when it's, we know it's not safe. And this is a guy who has no medical training whatsoever and who is profoundly biased for a number of reasons, which we won't go into. So he writes this article, which then gets distributed to all and sundry on, on Twitter because he's got that distribution. It appears in the Daily Maverick. It appears all over the place. So anyway, then I went and responded to that. And then I realized that the, me the mainstream media, which is giving the message out in America on COVID-19 and lockdown, is in South Africa as well. It's represented here by the local radios, Cape Talk, Radio 567, uh, Radio 702 and by the Daily Maverick. They're all part of the mainstream media. Mm. And so you're not allowed to say anything that isn't being said by the mainstream media in the United States, by CNN, Sky and BBC. Oh, so your, do, do your stories have to line up with, is that what you're saying? They have to line up with what they're Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. <laughs> and they will take you out. And so, so they try to take me out again on this thing. <laughs> So it turns out that hydroxychloroquine is highly effective if it's given within the first day or the first two days. It's you, the mortality drops to almost zero if you take hydroxychloroquine plus zinc plus azithromycin. So you've got to get the, the triple combination. So, so if that is true and the evidence is coming through, Fauci declared hydroxychloroquine was without value and various other people on Twitter, one of the guys, Eric Topol, who's the most followed doctor on Twitter, he immediately said hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Now, hold on, why would you say that? And he said it because, because Trump said it does work. This was right at the beginning. So it became a, it became a political issue. Yeah. But the reality is today that hydroxychloroquine does work. And if it does work, we don't have to lock down. We just, if people get sick, we give them hydroxychloroquine plus the others, and we don't mm. have a problem. So, so then I realized that there's something else going on and I followed it and it's clear to me that, that this is a scam on the, 
on the level of the heart disease scam. Mm. And, and that's the tragedy. And, and it's the story that we're saving lives is not more people will die as a consequence of lockdown and more people will be put into poverty because of lockdown. I agree. There's, there's some other big agenda and it's this world, world is going to be controlled, all unif the world's going to be controlled by a group. And uh, that's, it's a disaster. And mm. we have to vote these people out of power. And mm. it's, the, it's the World Health Organization and those people and that, that diet, the Lancet EAT diet, which is meant to now we've got to stop eating meat because we've got to eat plants and, and so on. It's, it's just a disaster. Yeah. Well, that's, I know I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't, don't have the level of following that you have anyone, but I just feel that a lot of my, I feel that one part of my calling is definitely trying to be a voice. I know even, even though you're fighting against the currents, you know, at least try and be a voice on the other side. And I think you are one of the, the greatest examples of that voice on the other side. So thank you. Thanks so much, Prof. I really, <laughs> really Thanks appreciate so your time. My pleasure. Um, Lovely to chat, Josh. And well, it all comes to a head if, if uh, Biden is, wins the election. And I'm not saying this because I like Trump or dislike him or dislike Biden, but if Biden wins, Unfortunately, that's the end for all of us because they're going to control, the world will be controlled mm. by the World Health Organization and those people. And, and you will be controlled. What we do, it will be controlled elsewhere. There won't be countries deciding their future. Yeah. It will be decided on some sort of conglomerate. And if you want to understand what's going on, you have to read Orwell's 1984. It's all described there. It's astonishing that a guy could write, in 1946, he, he finished the book up in 1946. He was on his deathbed with tuberculosis and he managed to get the book out. And that's the book you have to read to understand. What you said was there? Sorry, I didn't hear you. It's uh, 1984 by George Orwell. It's, 1984, uh, okay. Got it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a depressing book because it's, it is so prescriptive of what's going on today. Mm. Yeah. Well, Prof, I uh, wish you a good, uh, what does it say? Tuesday. Wish you a good Tuesday. Um, <laughs> I'll be in Cape Town in two weeks time for uh, a thing at Motley but uh, hopefully I'll catch up with you then but other than that thank you so much for your time and I hope you have a good evening thanks Josh lovely to catch up and look forward to seeing you in two weeks time yeah. at Motley Crew <laughs> in Cape Town yes <laughs>